this morning's lecture uh, is entitled, if I, I probably won't get very far with it, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. The Tradition of Justice. The Tradition of Justice. I have that on the handouts that you received. Now, in our recent considerations of the episode of Naboth Vineyard, we observed the significance of the prophet Elijah's intrusion into a matter of social justice. It's the first time we've seen that. It's in the ninth century, first half of the ninth century. Remember that Elijah is introduced right after Ahab is introduced. Now, what was at issue in this story was the principle of one man's obligation to preserve his inherited property. Now, I'm dealing with this matter historically. We began toward the end of the 11th century with Israel's asking for a king, because that's when we start to see where money becomes a problem. Money doesn't become a problem until there's a lot of it. And that's how we've been dealing with it so far. So in the case of the story of Naboth's vineyard, we were dealing with the principle of man's obligation, his obligation to preserve his inherited property. Now, that is something none of us take for, take for granted at all anymore. I'm not suggesting we should. That is a point of historical continuity in the Bible. As the story began, we saw the evidence of two distinct and very different economic systems. Ahab is introduced in that scene as a reasonable man with a reasonable business proposition. None of us, I think, not a one of us, would object if somebody came to our home, knocked on the door, and said, would you, would you take a million dollars for your house? But see, in the case of Naboth, it wouldn't make any difference how much money he was offered. He has a different concept of property. You have the text in front of you, I believe. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. Now, the first thing we noted last time was, here's someone who covets his neighbor's property. That's already a violation of a commandment. Well, the story even goes any further. It's already a violation. He wants what somebody else has. For it, for, for it, I will give you a vineyard better than this. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. I think all of us would find that a perfectly re re reasonable proposition, wouldn't we? Sometimes I kind of wish somebody would offer me a... But no, I don't really wish that at all because Denise and I would have to move and the idea of moving is unthinkable to us. Even moving, moving next door is unthinkable to us. How many tons of books do we have to go? Um, I think Denise would say, what do you mean, we? Yeah. <laughs> I think the exact same thing. <laughs> From experience. <laughs> That's it, Nancy. Pile on. Just standing up for Denise. 
Dean enjoyed that, by the way. I bet he did. Yeah, Dean enjoyed that. I do not believe that any of us would find an objection to the proposal that was made by Ahab. But clearly Naboth does. We believe, we modern enlightened people, we believe that everybody should be able to buy and sell property as they please. That's part of, and there's absolutely nothing in our religion that suggests otherwise. At this point in the story, then, we're disposed to be on the side of Ahab. Naboth, however, suddenly speaks of God. You have the text in front of you. The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Halalali, halalali, God forbid. Hallelujah, that forbid, forbid to me. Medonai, God forbid. Mititi et naklat abotai lak, that I should give you the inheritance of my father. Now here we find the confrontation of two different theories of real estate. Why does Naboth insist on not selling his property? Because he believes that the property is an inalienable estate. It's not his. The reason he gave is not just sentimental, as he saw as though he couldn't bear to part with the place where his grandparents had lived. The reason he gives is theological. He's forbidden by his conscience to do this. He invokes God's sacred name. May Adonai, may Adonai, God forbid, may Adonai. King Ahab has a simple commercial understanding of the matter. To him, all property is part of a fluid economy. Real estate, because it truly is real, has a special value unlike stocks and bonds and cash and the field is still there. But Ahab regards it like any property as completely fungible. Important, we, we, we see that because we don't, we, we don't have that culture in our, in our, our souls at all that, 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 that Naboth should, should object to this. In the mind of Naboth, the land bequeathed to him was indeed a bequest. He did not buy it. He did not pay for it. Therefore, he cannot sell it. It came to him from his ancestors. It came to him not only as property, but also as responsibility. His forebears had received it as a gift from God. And they handed it on as a gift from God. It was not something to be exploited as part of a secular economy. See what's going on there? To adopt this completely secular economy was to leave God out of the picture. Naboth would have none of it. An economy based on the violation of a commandment is rather serious. 
the economy we have right now, we ourselves, we enlightened people of the 21st century, is based on the violation of a commandment, namely the commandment not to covet. You, anybody see a problem with this? Now in the subsequent scenes of this episode, of course, the author demonstrates exactly what happens in a society where God is left out of the picture. The sin of coveting led immediately to the sins of perjured witness, murder, and theft. That's what you have by the end of that chapter. This is the sort of thing to be expected in a society in which a false god, Baal, holds sway. One cannot serve two masters. I put down Matthew 6, 24, I believe. No one can serve two masters. Rather, he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. There's one of the places where the text preserves the actual Aramaic word that Jesus uses. Mamonah, mamonah. Now, in our study of the history of the biblical economy, the intervention of Elijah is particularly significant. As we know, Elijah did not die. Talked about this, I think, last Sunday a bit, didn't I, in the, in the evening service? I think I did. <coughs> God bless you. Elijah went away on a fiery chariot. And the people of God have always expected him to return as a sign of the last times, waiting for Elijah. The later prophet, Malachi, when he speaks of this, refers to the, the ministry refers to the ministry of Elijah, pardon me, he refers the ministry of Elijah to the law of Moses. I have down there a text from the, among the closing lines of the prophecy of Malachi for you, you have that in your handout. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, statutes and judgments. Okay, so remember the law of Moses. Next verse. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, when Elijah does appear, as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, notice he is accompanied by Moses. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. This is unique to Mark, by the way quite different from Matthew and Luke in this respect. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. Elijah appeared to them. Verb is in the singular, off the, he's in the singular. Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Elijah appears. By the way, there's a, there's a very good treatment of this in a chapter on the Transfiguration, but I can't remember which book it's in. It's either in the Jesus We Missed, which I suspect is the one, I suspect, or as a, a first volume on the Atonement. Um, I have a chapter in there where I talk about this at uh, considerable length. 
Now, in the story of Naboth's vineyard, the prophet Elijah proves himself a disciple of Moses. You see, the tradition of justice is handed on in Israel. The tradition of justice is handed on, beginning with Moses. He stands up to a king in order to protest against social injustice. Who's the first one to do that in the Bible? Somebody who stands up to a king to protest against social injustice. You see, Moses was Israel's first social critic. He was also the founder of the economic system to which Naboth appeals. Now, beginning with Samuel in the late 11th century, Israel's prophets expressed doubts that the adoption of the monarchy was a step in the right direction. We saw that, we took that over a year ago now. I think, I think the very first class we had, I talked about the social changes that came toward the end of the 11th century and, and uh, Israel's decision. We talked about the geopolitics with Egypt and, Egypt and Babylon and Hittites. And, These prophets feared, and Samuel spoke for all of them, that the loss of the tribal system of government would lead to the oppression of the people. By the time of Ahab, they had plenty of firsthand evidence of oppression. In the Mosaic system, every Israelite became a landowner. Solomon's reforms changed all that. Solomon found ways of improving the economy. Remember we talked about how families are going to have two more children in Auburn when menarche begins a year earlier and menopause starts a year later. Two extra kids per family. Curtis Paddock's talking about that the expansion of the family. Before long, you have families too big for those farms. Solomon takes care of this. In other words, the, the mosaic model had his own inbuilt problems. In the mosaic system, every Israelite was a landowner. Solomon changed all that. In fact, it began even before Solomon. Remember I, when, you took the, when we took the reign of Saul, the way Saul grabbed all of these, all of these international routes, just, just, just read about the reign of Saul closely and see where he fought his wars. He took over, all, over the entire highway system, down to Egypt and, and, and across, across the, uh, the, the Fertile Crescent. Even Saul saw that. At first, the situation was disguised. Because if the economy is getting better, families are getting larger, there's more food, money's moving. Remember in the, in, in the reign of Solomon, all the money that's around. Nobody sees a problem if there's a lot of money, that, but that's when the problem starts. Solomon did, in fact, introduce a vast new wealth. It was gold became as common as silver and silver became as common as brass. 
You see, from the perspective of wealth, Solomon was a success. And now what prophet wants to argue with success? Now, everything changes in the 10th century. What large geopolitical, if you test your, test your memory, what large geopolitical development in the mid-10th century changed all that? Egypt. The emergence of the 22nd dynasty. Remember? Shishak, remember Shishak? The emergence of the 22nd dynasty. Where Egypt now starts to flex some muscle. Egypt starts to make its influence felt up into the Fertile Crescent. Egypt invades the Holy Land. Egypt instigates the Civil War. After Solomon's death in 922, the Civil War. After the rise of Egypt's 22nd dynasty, and the now emerging new Assyrian Empire to the east, Israel began to detect a problem. The situation no longer seemed like a success. There was widespread poverty. People had left their lands and now they're living in the city and they don't have jobs. And the people who have the money, they want more of it. Coveting. They started to have an economy based on coveting. During the 8th century, which we haven't gotten to yet, we will sometime over the next few weeks, well, almost. During the 8th century, the theme of social and economic justice becomes a major theme of the literary prophets. It's now time, I think, to start talking about the literary prophets, but I want to make sure I, I don't Russia, if, if, if this is going to be a new theme, if, if any questions for me at this point. Yes, Sandy? Is there anything to be said about Ahab's intentions to change the land use from a vegetable garden to a vineyard and how that would impact, you know, if we're, I, we're working in economy? I, I gave a lot of thought to that. The relative merits of a vegetable garden and a vineyard and I can't find any significance in it. Okay. I remember back when, many, many years ago, when I was raising tomatoes, and I was plowing up this large tomato field on the back of a horse, I mean, behind a horse, rather. <laughs> they gave me my own horse, by the way. Um, and, I, and, my, and my own plow, and I was, I was in charge of this tomato patch down in Nelson County, Kentucky. Um, it was an old vineyard. It was an old vineyard. In case this ever comes up a, a situation for any of you, you know, if you have a vineyard, it's, it's easily transformed into a tomato patch because it's, it's, you have all the strings and you tie your tomato plants up. You know. I just say that's just practical pastoral advice. Can I ask you? Uh, yes, yes ma'am. Um, excuse me, please, if this was addressed in our earlier talk. In, in the mosaic economy, everybody's a landowner, right? So everybody has a means to support themselves. And then as Solomon changes that economy, that results in poverty, 
Yeah. No, it did. It did not. It did not result in poverty. No. That was no. the problem. Oh, no, 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 it resulted in enormous wealth. Okay. And no poverty. That sets the stage for trouble, exactly. When, so when Egypt emerges in the 22nd right. dynasty, right. they're in this trouble. Right, and those people without jobs, right? But if you look at the, like, the law, like if you read Leviticus, there are all kinds of statutes on how to deal with the poor. So it seems like this was anticipated. You're going to have to wait until I deal with that. I, you're right, I haven't dealt with that yet. Okay. Oh, I intend to say a great deal about that. Okay. I intend to say. We haven't, even, we haven't really in seriously discussed the Torah yet. And, and the religion, all property in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible is related to the neighbor. It's, it's, a, it's a village morality. That's the same from a city morality. You're dealing with neighbors. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet the stuff thy neighbor has. There's a whole moral structure has to do with the neighborhood where it's a lovely day. <laughs> yes. Nancy? Yes. Um, now are you just getting to what Egypt's role was? Because I don't quite understand. Egypt simply took over, hon. Oh. Egypt just simply took over. Uh, Egypt, Egypt stepped in. The... The, the 21st dynasty, up until up until 922, the 21st dynasty was 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 an outlier. E Egypt simply reestablishes its traditional hegemony over the region, and that finishes off anything Solomon had in mind. And that's why after Solomon's death, there's civil war. It's begun by Jeroboam, right? The first Jeroboam. But remember, when Jeroboam starts his rebellion, and Solomon puts it down, he flees to Egypt. And he stays in Egypt. It's after Solomon's death, Jeroboam comes back with an army. And that's when the kingdoms, kingdoms divide in, in 922. Okay? Okay. All right. It's time to speak of the second part of the Tanakh. The Tanakh, of course, is the Old Testament. Tanakh. T-A-N-A-K. The Torah is the first part. T, the Nevi'im, the prophets, Na, is the second part. And the Ketubim, the writings, the third part. Those are three divisions of the, of the Torah. I want, want to just mention here something about the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im, the prophets, are divided to two parts. The first is called the former prophets, and the second is called the latter prophets. Now, this does not mean early and late. It has to do entirely with their position within the text itself. It has nothing to do with chronology. Just the position within the Bible itself. It's not an historical distinction, but a literary distinction. It has nothing to do with chronology. It has to do solely with the order in which the books are found in the biblical canon. Former prophets simply means that these particular books appear first in the Bible, right after the Torah. We often refer to them as the historical books. They include Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, 
First and Second Kings. The term later prophets or latter prophets refers to those books that we commonly think of as prophetic books, beginning with Isaiah and going through Malachi. That's all it means. But notice that all these will be called historical books in the Bible, they're prophetic books. Thus, in the Hebrew Bible, all of the material from Joshua to Malachi comes under the heading prophets. Now, in this regard, the books of Kings are of special importance in the study of the literary prophets. Because the reigns of the kings provide the historical context in which the prophetic oracles were first delivered. This is most especially the case with regard to Second Kings. The Bible draws attention to this by the editorial insertion of a chronological reference at the beginning of each book, at least one that was available to the editor. The turning point in this history is the mid-8th century, when prophetic literature appears for the first time. Our first prophetic literature in the 8th century. The books of the kings, particularly Second Kings, gives us the history of this period. Starting with the reigns of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam in Samaria. I put those dates down for you. Notice I have the reign of Uzziah in 789 to 742. Got that down? It corresponds roughly to Jeroboam II in the north from 786 to 746. That period, the reigns of Uzziah in the, north, in, in the south and Jeroboam II in the north, that's the period when we start to get the emergence of the literary prophets beginning with Amos. And we'll continue in fact, I'll back up and, and, and take some of this stuff we just had uh, two weeks from now. All right? Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come to the end of time. Amen.